Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Msibudi Makua. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, new documentary reveals alleged CIA role in Nelson Mandela's arrest in 1962. And Kenyan police fire tear gas at protesters in the capital, Nairobi. In economics, Zimbabwe cuts its economic growth forecast. And in sports news, FIFA president says 2026 World Cup bidding process must be bulletproof. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musan. The United States and other world powers have voiced readiness to supply weapons to Libya's internationally recognized government to counter militants and rivals. The U.S., four other permanent U.N. Security Council members and more than 15 other nations participating at the Libya talks in Vienna in a statement said they're seeking exemptions from a United Nations arms embargo imposed on Libya to help the country fight militants. Burundi officials say Rwanda's expelled more than 1,300 Burundians in the past week after they refused to move to refugee camps. Rwanda's been hosting tens of thousands of people who have fled more than a year of political violence in Burundi. Burundi's accused Rwanda of interfering in its political crisis, which has seen Burundian government forces clash with protesters and rebels, who say the president violated the constitution by standing for a third term last year. Rwanda has denied Burundi's accusations. The UN says more than 9 million people in the Lake Chad region are in desperate need of food aid as the violent insurgency being waged there by Boko Haram continues. The UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in a statement says half of the region's residents are facing chronic food insecurity and malnutrition as the violence around Lake Chad continues to to deteriorate. UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs Stephen O'Brien is on a four-day tour of the region to raise awareness of the crisis. The International Federation of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent Societies has pledged 110 million US dollars to help an initiative to help drought-stricken southern African countries. And estimated 32 million people across the region are struggling to feed themselves and the figure is expected to rise to 50 million by the end of the year. The organization says it aims to help a million people with emergency food distribution, irrigation schemes and new farming practices. 
South Africa's National Assembly will this morning hold a snap debate on the crisis at Vuan in Limpopo province. Residents have burnt down more than 20 schools as well as houses and municipal trucks, protesting the incorporation of parts of Wani into a new municipality. The debate was proposed by the opposition Democratic Alliance last week. Mercedes Percent reports. Residents of Wani have been protesting against the demarcation board's final decision to incorporate some of their areas into a new municipality. They unsuccessfully challenged the board's decision in court recently. This led to some people in Vuani going on a rampage by burning down 24 schools, leaving thousands of learners stranded and without school infrastructure. The theme for today's debate will focus on, and I quote, ways to resolve the crisis in Vuani to restore the people's rights to human dignity and basic services, closed quote. And finally, the UN Special Envoy for Global Education and former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Gordon Brown, says many generations of school children caught up in war zones or disaster areas face misery unless the world helps to restore their education. He was announcing a new global education fund which will be officially launched at next week's World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul, Turkey. Matthew Wells has more. Mr Brown said that the new fund called Education Cannot Wait would provide a lost generation with the first ever humanitarian fund for education in emergencies. It would try and reach a total of 30 million girls and boys around the world, including 20 million who currently have no access to education at all, he told journalists at UN headquarters. He pointed to the 3 million children in and around Syria as the most dire case, but also highlighted other conflict and disaster areas such as Nigeria, Yemen and Nepal. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. Now, U.S. authorities say they are aware of the reports that a former American official is claiming in a new documentary that he gave information which led to the arrest of former South African President Nelson Mandela in 1962. With South Africa's ruling ANC spokesperson calling this a serious indictment, our U.S. correspondent Priscilla Huff has the reaction from Washington. The Obama administration is aware of the reports that in a new documentary, Donald Rickard claims he was the one who tipped off the apartheid-era government in 1962 that led to the arrest of Nelson Mandela. The U.S. State Department is not commenting further on the contents of these reports or the implications they might have for the relationship between the United States and South Africa. Well, our relationship... uh, uh with the government, Pretoria is very strong, and uh, and uh, uh, we look forward to continuing to enjoy that close relationship going forward. Um, I've seen the press reports on this. I, I don't have anything to, to comment on one way or the other. 
Donald Rickard told the filmmaker that he was a former vice counsel for the United States in Durban and also a CIA operative. Unfortunately, he died several weeks ago. The new film, Mandela's Gun, is set to be screened this week at the Cannes Film Festival. Priscilla Huff, SABC News, Washington. Supporters of Kenya's opposition leader Rayla Odinga staged demonstrations in the capital, Nairobi, demanding government to remove the independent electoral commission. The commission, according to Rayla Odinga, has colluded with the government of President Uhuru Kenyatta to rig next year's presidential election. James Shimangula reports. For the third consecutive day, thousands of people supporting Kenyan opposition leader Raida Odinga entered the capital Nairobi in droves, singing anti-government slogans and uttering remarks that the country's independent electoral commission must be removed before next year's presidential election. The message spread loudly and publicly by Raila Odinga supporters had a task message that the Independent Electoral Commission, which in the cacophony, they referred to in short as IEBC. IBC must go and that we must listen to the voice of the people. IBC must go! 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 As the demonstrations spread across the city, blocking the free flow of vehicles and the movement of pedestrians, tear gas canisters were repeatedly heard here and there. Already Nairobi Police Chief Japheth Koome has accused Raila Odinga's supporters of stoning police squads that have been deployed throughout the city. Nairobi Police Chief Japheth Koome issued a stern warning to Raila Odinga's supporters. Anybody coming here with the youths armed with offensive weapons have a constitutional responsibility to address that kind of situation. That was Nairobi Police Chief Japheth Kome. Meanwhile, Kenyan opposition leader Raila Odinga has vowed to continue leading protests similar to the three demonstrations that have already been held until the Independent Electoral Commission exits from office before next year's presidential election, which Odinga is expected to contest against President Uru Kenyatta. <laughs> Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Political parties represented in the South African Parliament have committed themselves to creating a climate of tolerance, level playing field, free political campaigning and open public debate as campaigns for the local government elections gain momentum. The 13 parties signed the Independent Electoral Commission's Code of Conduct in Midrand yesterday. The rules of the Electoral Code include speaking out against political violence, not declaring any area a no-go zone, and accepting the results of the election or challenging them in court. Amos Pajo reports. 
A fierce contest for municipalities lies ahead, but first parties have to commit to playing by the rules. President Jacob Zuma signed the pledge on behalf of the ANC. He committed the party to leveling the playing field and says all should play fairly. We pledge the ANC's support and commitment to the IC code of conduct and undertake to abide by all the dictates of the code of conduct. The ANC also reaffirms its commitment to political tolerance, peaceful coexistence with other parties, as well as free political activity throughout our country. We look forward to a robust and peaceful electioneering period at equal level. The official opposition raised concerns over the use of state resources to woo voters. DA leader Musi Maimani signed the pledge but raised concern that the electoral code of conduct does not address what he called two threats facing this election. The IC must be at the forefront of ensuring that in fact the code is executed. Their problems have been well expressed in court, uh, in the Tokwe judgment, and these are risks that we face in this election. But the second is the use of state resources. I think it's in the same judgment that it says political parties cannot uh, be entitled to simply be distributing food passes. That violates the will of the people. The other thing is the fact that uh, ultimately, even in the public protector report this week, this poses a risk for us. Therefore, I still maintain that it must be part of the pledge so that political parties don't use state machinery to campaign. Pleads with the IEC to exercise its very own good ethic and practice impartiality, integrity, transparency and accountability in executing the electoral code of conduct equal to its expectations of all political parties in ensuring a balanced and unbiased electioneering platform both in the media and on the ground. The IFP says the stakes are high in these elections. The party's Inkosi Elfas Mzamobutelezi. The IFP condemns any party that would buy people's vote, whether with state resources, empty promises, or divisive rhetoric. We must ensure that the genuine will of the people is expressed in these elections. It is the only hope South Africa has for protecting our hard-won democracy. The IFP champions free and fair elections. Other parties call for an end to no-go zones, fair coverage by the public broadcaster, and for those who violate the code to be punished. Penalties for parties that breach the code include a fine of up to 200,000 rand, being stopped from working in the area, or having their party registration or votes in the area cancelled. IEC Chairperson Glenn Machinini has urged the parties to use relevant platforms such as the Electoral Court to report any violation of the Code of Conduct. He says they will be working closely with the state security agencies to ensure that all parties campaign freely. The South African uh, Police and National Prosecution Authority have also committed to making personnel uh, available urgently uh, to investigate and to bring to book any or any party who violates the code. And the model that they are following is almost similar to that adopted during the FIFA World Cup, uh, where justice was swift. 
The commission says all other political parties and independent candidates who will be contesting the elections will sign the pledge soon. A new online platform has been launched for parties to submit lists of their candidates. I'm Amos Paro in Midrand. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. New guidelines on the management of health complications from female genital mutilation or FGM have been released by the World Health Organization. FGM is the partial or total removal of external genitalia or other injuries for, for to female genital organs for non-medical reasons. Globally, there are 200 million women and girls living with FGM, according to the agency. Jocelyn Sambira has a story. Female genital mutilation, or FGM, has no health benefits, can cause grave harm, and violates the rights of girls and women, WHO warns. 30 countries in Africa practice FGM, including a few countries in Asia and the Middle East. But with increased global migration, more cases are happening in Europe, North America, and elsewhere. Dr. Lale Sai is the WHO coordinator in the Department for Adolescents and At-Risk Populations team. Despite efforts to eradicate this practice, every year 3 million girls and women are at risk of being undergone to this procedure and uh, risk of exposure to the health consequences of this harmful practice. Young girls before the age of 15 are especially vulnerable. Procedures can cause severe bleeding, problems urinating, infections, and even death. FGM can also result in complications in childbirth and increased risk of newborn deaths. Other long-term health problems include sexual dysfunction, psychological risks like depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. WHO is helping health workers provide better care to women and girls who have undergone cutting through training and allowing them access to the right information. Dr. Doris Shu is a medical officer with WHO. In the work of this guideline, we documented that there is a great gap of evidence. We found that there are tremendous needs for research, and we need to intensify efforts to train healthcare providers. The dissemination and implementation of these guidelines will be a critical step towards making sure that the quality of health care and the health comes of these girls and women are improved. The guidelines also warn against the so-called medicalization of the practice, which is what happens when healthcare providers perform FGM when families aware of the health complications make the request. Sometimes the healthcare workers are asked to perform reinfibulation after delivery. Infibulation is the complete excision of the clitoris and sewing up of the vagina. Here's Dr. Doris Shu again. Medicalization is never acceptable because it violates medical ethics as it is a harmful practice 
Medicalization itself perpetuates FGM, and the risks outweigh any perceived benefits. For Dr. Shu, healthcare providers can become influential agents of change and prevent FGM from happening in their communities by rejecting requests for medicalization, recognize FGM and its complications, and appropriately treat the girls and women. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. It's 19 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Weak law enforcement institutions and some traditional cultural practices hinder victims of gender-based violence in South Sudan from reporting these incidents to the authorities. As according to the UN mission in the country, UNMIS, which has launched a campaign targeting women in four camps for internally displaced people, Lida Liman heads the UNMIS field office in the Warup state, which is behind the campaign. She speaks to she speaks about the scope of the challenge. I think it's a big problem generally all over the country and it's perpetuated basically I think by people who are primarily ignorant. First of all, the women are, do not know their rights. And then secondly, you have so many you know, men who are perpetrators of sexual and even gender-based violence who also do not know exactly what it entails. So it is an issue, yes. It's quite endemic. So when you talk to the local chiefs there about their customs and about men and women relationship, and uh, now you say that sometimes some of their practices is, could be amounted to gender-based violence, what do they tell you? Well, from my experience, I find that a lot of these practices are rooted in ignorance. People will tell you it's our culture, and um, of course culture is not easy to change. But the moment you begin to explain to them how sometimes culture can be repugnant, then the, the awareness starts and then they don't realize that actually all we've been doing all this while has been violating the rights of one group of people, and especially a vulnerable group that actually should be protected. Because don't forget that um, gender-based violence is not only meted out to women, but even to the youth who are traumatized for life. So I find that um, sometimes it's ignorance a bit of the times, there's a bit of recalcitrance and people are adamant. But when you explain to them the repercussions, the ripple effects, and the fact that it actually violates the basic law of the country, then you find that there's a shift. But it also entails robust and constant education. This is not a paradigm shift that you can effect in one day. It has to be progressive and it has to be consistent before it becomes ingrained. Who are you targeting uh, in this uh, campaign? Is this just women or also men and young people are included? Actually, we started off targeting women. And I'm happy to say that even as the program continues to be ruled out, we've already reached almost 850 women um, in three IDP camps. We have just one more IDP camp to reach. However, feedback the feedback I get already is that the women themselves are asking that in future, such initiatives should include particularly the perpetrators. The women are asking that they want to be in the same forum and have these issues discussed with those that they've been perpetrated. And that, for me, is a positive thing because in the past it was difficult to have men and women sitting together discussing such sensitive issues. So for women now to be advocating that, no, we want to continue these initiatives, but have the men with us, particularly those we perceive as perpetrators of these unfortunate practices, for me, it's a step in the right direction, and it shows that we are doing something right. What role can the UNMIS field office play in combating gender-based violence? 
again, the messaging from the participants, as I said, is to continue to organize such awareness-building programs. But they've also themselves asked for continuous engagement through radio programming like this. They would like to have us help them to get on air so that the message can spread wide. I'm also informed that the Minister of Gender was there for the session with the Women's Union, and she herself admitted that every woman, in a sense, is subjected to GVD and says that the ministry is conducting a survey, you know, but they they need help. So we can also lend our expertise in this area. Uh, We have a robust gender unit. We also have um, an integrated approach to the way we work at the field level. So human rights, gender, the the necessary, you know, sections, child protection, we, we, we can come together. We do it already, actually, and we support the various line ministries. So I think that aside having awareness building programs, we can continue. That was uh, Lida Liman, head of the UN Mission in South Sudan, and she was speaking to UN Radio's David Lukan. The Kenyan government has reiterated that it will not reverse its unilateral decision to repatriate more than 600,000 Somali refugees from the world's largest refugee camp in the northeastern part of the country. The Kenyan government stuck to its decision after turning down a plea by the international community to stop the repatriation. Channel Africa's James Shimangula has more. The authorities in Kenya have refused to renege on the decision to repatriate more than 600,000 Somali refugees who have stayed at a camp in the country for more than 20 years. To make matters worse, a plea from the International Rescue Committee, President David Miliband has fallen on deaf ears, with the authorities in Nairobi maintaining that the program to send the Somali refugees back home will be undertaken as planned. Here is Miliband's remarks regarding Kenyan decision to close down the refugee camp. In fact, we don't think the debate should be for or against camps. The issue is finding something better than camps for the long-term displaced. I think uh, in, in thinking about the future, it's vital to start with the fact that Kenya has shown extraordinary fortitude and resilience in the face of successive refugee flows. Uh, the recent government statements reflect understandable frustration at the international community's laid-back attitude to Kenya's role as a refugee-hosting country. Explaining why Somali refugees should be sent back home, Kenya's Interior Minister Joseph Nkaiseri made the following points pertinent to the repatriation process and even going to the extent of making comparison and drawing inference with refugees fleeing Carnegie-ridden Syria. They too have a right and obligation to contribute to the political and economic development of their country. Rich, prosperous and democratic countries are turning away refugees from Syria, one of the worst war zones since World War II. Expounding on the fact that refugee camps such as the Dab, where Somalis are calling home, have become a safe haven for terrorists planning attacks in Kenya, Interior Minister Joseph Nkaiseri had this to say. This decision has been made by government. The fact that the camps have become hosting ground for Al-Shabaab, as well as centers of smuggling and contraband trade, besides being enablers of illicit weapons. Large-scale attack, such as the Westgate shopping mall, 
attack, Garissa University attack, the Lamu attack were planned and deployed from the Dao refugee complex. Refugee camps are supposed to be temporary humanitarian remedy awaiting stabilization of countries which are unstable to stabilize. That was Kenya's Interior Minister Joseph Nkaiseri maintaining that the country will never reverse its decision on the planned repatriation of Somali refugees from the world's biggest refugee camp in the northeastern part of the East African nation. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you in the headlines. Kenya's opposition leader Rayla Odinga says protests to demand the overhaul of the country's electoral commission will continue every Monday despite yesterday's violent breakup of demonstration by local police. The United States and other world powers have voiced readiness to supply weapons to Libya's internationally recognized government to counter militants and rivals. And the UN says more than 9 million people in the Lake Chad region are in desperate need of food aid as the violent insurgency being waged there by Boko Haram continues. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. The head of official export agency of the United States government says American exports to sub-Saharan Africa remain low and points to an opportunity for export growth to the region. The president of the U.S. Export-Import Bank was speaking with journalists during a roundtable discussion in New York just after his return from the World Economic Forum in Kigali, Rwanda. Fred Hochberg says the bank wants to signal to buyers in sub-Saharan Africa that they stand ready to fill financing gaps that currently limit the purchasing of big-budget American products and services to the region. Show and Bryce Peace reports. It's a bank that seeks to finance American exports through direct loans and guarantees to foreign entities that might not have otherwise been able to make the transaction. As bank president and chairman of the board, Fred Hochberg explains. Since President Obama was elected and uh, and I came in as chair, we have done over $7 billion worth of loans, guarantees and insurance in sub-Saharan Africa. Almost double the report from President Clinton and President Bush combined. In South Africa, the bank has made substantial loans for the purchase of American-made locomotives by Transnet. While a direct loan of over $800 million was made to ESCOM in 2011 for engineering and construction services for the Kusile power plant in Mpumalanga. Although our focus and our mandate is about U.S. jobs, when you put in infrastructure, you create construction jobs and then you also create longer-term jobs in running the infrastructure. But more importantly, you take the friction out of the economy. Um, in South Africa, we, we finance engineering services to a power plant. It was several hundred, two, three hundred U.S. jobs over a four or five year period and 15,000 construction jobs in South Africa. So the multiplier effect and the multiplier effect on the continent is in many ways certainly equal and often greater. Currently, U.S. exports to sub-Saharan Africa total between 1 and 2 percent as the region becomes increasingly important as a growth pole for American exports that have lagged behind China. China has been very dominant in sub-Saharan Africa. There's no question about that. The U.S., uh, our exports to, to sub-Saharan Africa are uh, low, frankly, versus if you look at the global economy, only about 1% of, roughly speaking, of U.S. exports are destination is sub-Saharan Africa. It's about 5% of our portfolio, so I'm proud to say that we disproportionately are financing a far larger portion of our exports to sub-Saharan Africa than the exports would suggest. As the bank tries to reposition itself as a preferred guarantor of financing for big projects in the region, that can benefit companies and secure jobs in the United States. Hochberg explains. One of the reasons for my visit twice and for going to the World Economic Forum is to signal to both buyers in sub-Saharan Africa and exporters in the United States that if financing is what's holding you back from selling there, where we can provide the financing. Our goal is to fill in gaps. When there's a gap in financing, either because... Uh, American companies may be facing foreign competition or simply the debt markets are too shallow to support some of these larger infrastructure investments. That's where we step in. 
There's no question that the U.S. Import-Export Bank is an institution with an America-first mandate to grow American exports that create and sustain jobs here in the United States. But as their argument goes, financing huge infrastructure projects has economic spin-offs in the region where that financing is being put to work, as they hope to grow U.S. exports to the region that currently accounts for under 2% of the global American export market. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Health experts estimate that about up to 80% of South Africans are living with hypertension. Most of them are not even aware of it. They say there's been an increase in the number of people with hypertension or high blood pressure and younger people, including children in our country. This comes as the world commemorates World Hypertension Day today. The theme for this year is Know Your Blood Pressure. Tabilem Bele reports. It's not called a silent killer for nothing, as Professor Alta Skitter, the president of the South African Hypertension Society, explains. For a very good reason, there are no symptoms. In most people, it's symptomless, even though the blood pressure could be extremely high. Some people feel some sort of dizziness or headache, but generally there are no symptoms. Um, Even if you're using medication or not, there are no symptoms. So you don't know that you have hypertension. That's one of the biggest issues with hypertension globally. She says they therefore strongly encourage people to get tested and know their blood pressure numbers. We need to measure the blood pressure on two or three occasions. And if it's at both or all these instances higher than 140 or 90, then someone is diagnosed with being hypertensive. South Africa is among the countries with the highest numbers of people living with high blood pressure and at increased risk of strokes and heart attacks, as Jessica Byrne, a dietitian at the Heart and Stroke Foundation, explains. And we have uh, studies that report prevalence figures between 35 and 80 percent of people living with high blood pressure. Some recent uh, research that was looking at a number of different lower and middle income countries actually found that we had the highest uh, prevalence of of high blood pressure. The the danger with this is that high blood pressure is really putting us at risk for for heart attacks and strokes, um, which are actually the second biggest killer in our country after HIV or AIDS. She says while hypertension was previously associated with elderly people, there's been an increase in younger generations as well, including children. Sadly, we actually are also seeing even children uh, starting to be diagnosed with high blood pressure. Um, And what's concerning is we have such a high uh, prevalence of of obesity, overweight and obesity in children, um, where about one in four children in South Africa are actually overweight or obese. And and this is really contributing to that high burden of of, of high blood pressure that we're starting to see in, in those children. She cited food sold at tuck shops for children, poor diet at home, lots of salty food, alcohol, smoking and inactivity of South Africans as the major contributors to the silent killer. High blood pressure can be controlled by a change in lifestyle, diet and chronic medication. Tabilempele SABC News, Johannesburg. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization, selling fish that was caught illegally will become more difficult when a new international treaty comes into effect in June. The Port State Measures Agreement seeks to curb the 23 billion US dollars annual trade from illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing or IUU fishing. So far, 30 countries have committed to the agreement, which requires states to designate specific ports for use by foreign vessels. These ships will have 
to provide authorities with information about their catches in addition to allowing for inspections of their logbooks, licenses and other items. Fisheries Officer at FAO, Laurie Curtis, has been championing the treaty. IUU fishing, by its very nature, the fact that it's illegal, unreported, unregulated, is very difficult to calculate the extent of it. It's a huge problem, but the thing is that it really is a large problem for legitimate fishers. They're the ones that are really losing the most because it's a loss for their income. And the Port St. Measures Agreement is seen as an important point because there are other means, of course, that go along with the Port St. Measures Agreement to tackle illegal and reported unregulated fishing, such as making sure that you have vessel monitoring systems on your vessels, having fleet registries, observer programs, a number of measures. But one of the things is that those all involve trying to go after the vessels, which is very expensive, where the Port Stay Measures Agreement Instead of chasing after vessels, you're waiting for them to come into port. And the more ports are closed to IUU fishing vessels, the less access to places they have to turn their fish into money, if you will, and it will become less and less profitable. You mentioned this a bit, but how exactly will it work at the port level? What would happen is if I'm the state that has the port that's under the agreement, if a vessel is going to come into an international vessel, sorry, I should clarify that this is for foreign vessels. If a vessel is going to want to use or enter my port, they would need to request authorization. Now, the port state will request certain information at that time. The port state might say, okay, We need information on your fishing licenses, where you've been fishing, the International Maritime Organization number, which is like an an ID number, information on logbooks, this type of thing. And at that point, just this point of entering, the port state might say um, this vessel is quite high risk for IU fishing. So they have the choice then where they can choose to say, actually, it's not worth it. We're going to deny them entry into port or... They may say that we will grant you entry, but that doesn't mean use of port. They can still inspect the vessel. If in any of the cases IUU fishing is suspected or found, they can deny the vessel use of the port as well. And this doesn't mean just for landing fish. It can be for refueling or anything like this, any of the uses. In these cases, they would actually report this information as well. So they might report it to the flag state. The vessel obviously is flying a flag of a country, the Regional Fisheries Management Organization, a number of different um, relevant parties. These are things that states have the right and can do anyway. But obviously by joining the Port State Measures Agreement, by becoming party, they have this obligation too. For countries with fewer resources, are these measures realistic? Well, first of all, I think, yeah, it is difficult. But like I said before, when you recognize that IUU fishing is a problem, you want to go for the most cost effective. So in that sense, maybe a developing country that lacks resources might choose to put more resources into their port state measures. But when this agreement was negotiated, the member countries, they foresaw this. And so there's actually an article in the agreement, and it's on the requirements for developing states. So recognizing that a developing state might not have the the legal framework in place, the procedures in place, the human capacity, 
the article outlines that these countries should receive support either through FAO or other means that they will decide but it could be in terms of technical support and also it mentions setting up a fund to be able to support developing countries to better be able to implement the measures so that the burden doesn't fall disproportionately on developing states so how many countries have agreed to the treaty? So basically now is the big moment that everybody has been waiting for because to enter into force it was required that there would be 25 parties. Now we stand at 30 parties. Now this number it actually includes the European Union on behalf of its 28 member states. So with 30 parties now involved at this point is this a promising sign? I think it's a very promising sign. These 30 parties actually represent more than 60% of global fish imports and more than 49% of global fish exports. And this is just the beginning, really. We anticipate that this momentum will continue to build and more and more countries will become party to the agreement. That was Louis Curtis, Fisheries Officer at the Food and Agriculture Organization, speaking to UN Radio's Sandra Ferrari. Assault Blackie University in South Africa's Northern Cape province has kicked off Africa Month celebrations in the province by holding a colloquium on the state, past and present of South African literature. The colloquium was held in partnership with the Department of Arts and Culture. Famous South African writers Zeksim Da, Mandla Langa and Eusebius MacKaiser headlined the colloquium. Neo Budumela reports from Kimberley. Community members gathered at the university where the discussion delved into challenges facing authors in the country. The discussion also touched on how indigenous languages play a crucial role in highlighting the black South African narrative. Writer Zakes Mda says there's an abundance of authors who write in indigenous languages, but distribution of these books is a problem. There is great literature published out there in South Africa in all the different indigenous languages. There are wonderful novels, plays, poetry that are published by various publishers, some of which are independent publishers, that publish in indigenous languages. The problem, of course, is distribution. And I would encourage then people to read this literature. Author Eusebius MacKaiser says sometimes the quality of writing in the country suffers because authors cannot commit full-time to their craft. It's very hard to be a full-time writer in South Africa because we don't make enough money from the sales of our books. And that means that you don't write as regularly as you want. It also means that um, you don't always have the luxury of time to workshop your books, the manuscripts, as thoroughly as you should. And that's a big, big problem for, for our whole country. Deputy Minister of Arts and Culture, Rejoice Mabudafasi, says the department encourages young authors to write their stories in African languages to build archives for future generations. I'm Neo Budumela in Kimberley. Our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoku.
The Western Cape Government Province investment arm in South Africa, Westgro, has invited international green energy investors to plow their money into the Cape's green economy. Delegations from countries like Canada, Belgium and America are in Cape Town ahead of the start of the Africa Utility Week conference. CEO of Westgro, Tim Harris, has told the delegation of the International Clean Tech Network that Cape Town could be used as a laboratory to develop and roll out the clean energy plans for Africa. What we're saying to the international partners is that the Cape is essentially a laboratory for them to develop and roll out their renewable energy and clean tech plans for Africa. What you have in Cape Town is a special combination of probably the strongest skills pipeline in Africa, but a developing world context to roll out your technology within a very functioning, high-quality infrastructure. Canadian-based chairperson of the International Clean Tech Network, Denis Lacrac, says that the aim of the network is to open access to commercial markets and create jobs. We're sharing the same objective, which is how can we increase economy, create new green jobs while reducing the impact on the environment? We can feel here a sense of appetite for clean technology, but also... We're here to discover the potential for partnerships. The World Economic Forum on Africa, which has just concluded in the Rwandan capital Kigali, has appealed for the joint partnership between private and public sector if the continent is to catch up with the rest of the world. Sylvain Escaramero reports. This has been a platform where leaders of all sorts have been providing every solution as to how Africa should catch up with the rest of the world. Most of the time in the last three days of deliberations seemed to dwell so much on challenges than providing solutions to these challenges. Zimbabwe has cut its economic growth forecast to 1.4% in 2016 from an initial forecast of 2.7%. The drought has scorched crops in most of the southern African nation, which has left up to 4 million people facing hunger. Output of the stable maize is now expected at 450,000 tonnes enough to last three and a half months. Annual inflation in Nigeria has quickened to a near six high of 13.7% in April. Nigeria's worst economic crisis in decades has been driven by a sharp drop in oil prices that has slashed government revenues. Gross domestic product was just 2.8% last year. The US dollar trades at 15.52 in South Africa, 10.94 in Botswana, 999 in Zambia, 69 British pound, 88 euro, gold 1,278 dollars, platinum 1,051 dollars an ounce, brand crude 49 dollars, 25 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Tabiso Lohoku. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Msibudi Makua.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with football news, the Council of East and Central Africa Football Association, SACAFA, has moved the SACAFA Kikame Cup from Zanzibar to Tanzania. The Secretary General of SACAFA, Nicholas, um, Nicholas rather, Musonya, confirmed to um, confirmed this uh, confirmed that this year's edition will be had in da- uh, will be held in Dar es Salaam from the 16th of June to the second tw- um, of July. Musonya says the change was triggered by the prevailing situation in Zanzibar, which is not ready for an event following the recent elections. Mosonye also added that this year's Sakafa Kigama Cup will be bigger, hinting at an increased figure of price money. FIFA President Gianni Infantino says the 2026 World Cup bidding process must be bulletproof after the controversy which has surrounded the hosting of the next two editions. FIFA announced a four-stage bidding process for the 2026 tournament with the final decision set for May 2020. After all the issues or criticisms or whatever which happened around the last World Cup bidding process, it is absolutely crucial for FIFA's credibility, that uh, we have a bulletproof bidding process in place for 2026. Therefore, we discussed already the first steps at the council meeting, and uh, we, there will be a new strategy and consultation phase starting now uh, for one year, because we have to get it right, and to get it right, you need to speak, you need to consult, you need to discuss, and you need to take advice. FIFA was forced to make changes to the way it awards the hosting rights after the vote in December 2010 awarded the 2018 as well as the 2022 tournaments to Russia and Qatar respectively. That vote is now a subject of a criminal investigation by Swiss authorities while Qatar's preparations have been marred by allegations of abuse of migrant workers in the construction industry. Qatar says it is working to deal with the issue. Infantino says future bidding would have to take into account such issues. We have to include human rights requirements, sustainable event management and environmental protection in the bidding documents. We are a modern organization now, and these are topics that an event like the Men's World Cup need to deal with. On athletics news, Olympic sprint champion Usain Bolt received minor treatment for slight discomfort on his hamstring following his 100-meter victory in Saturday's K-Men Invitational, according to his um, trainer, rather, Glenn Mills. Bolt, who is scheduled to run the 100-meter at the Golden Spike IAAF War Challenge in Australia, Czech Republic on Friday, traveled to Germany after posting 10.5 seconds in his season opener and had treatment there. Bolt is targeting an unprecedented Olympic three feet at the Rio de Janeiro Games in August, where he will be defending his 100, his 200, as well as his 4 by 100 relay titles. And finally, in rugby news, Kenya Sevens rugby team has been pulled with France, Scotland and Portugal in Pool C at Twickenham London um, Sevens event. It is the final leg of the 2015-2016 World Rugby Sevens World Series. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi has the details. It will be the second time in consecutive legs that Kenya will be playing Portugal in group stages, having rallied from 0-14 down to beat them in Paris last weekend. 
However, Shuja will need to reorganize before meeting France because they overrun Kenya at home in Paris during the main cup quarterfinals last weekend. Kenya's consistency came under severe test under hosts France in the quarterfinals and Australia in the plate semis. On both occasions, Kenya managed to score only one try in the two matches. South Africa is in Pool A alongside with Paris 7's winners Samoa, USA as well as Canada. Pool B sees Paris losing finalist Fiji drawn with Australia, England and Wales, while New Zealand head up Pool D and are joined by Argentina, Russia as well as Brazil. As well as Brazil. The three-day tournament starts on the 21st of May. The Zaya Sports News at the Sour stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, new documentary reveals a lead CIA role in Nelson Mandela's arrest in 1962 and Kenyan police fire tear gas at protesters in the capital, Nairobi. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Jane Matabula, technical producer Rivalina Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our shows, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Dennis Mpale with a song titled Do It Like Miles.
Good morning and welcome to Chat.